0: I'm Cam, and this is the Nerdbook Review. Today, I'm going to be bringing you an author interview, Damian Black, whose first novel, Devil's Night Dawning, the first in the Broken Stone Chronicle, is a finalist in this year's Spiffbo 2017 competition. I'm going to give you guys all the places I can be reached, and then a quick review. You can reach us at nerdbookreview at gmail.com, on Facebook with the page NerdBook Review on Twitter at The Nerd Book Review, as well as Goodreads with, once again, you got it, The Nerd Book Review. If you would be so kind as to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or whatever format you listen to it, we would also be greatly appreciative. All right, so I need to give a disclaimer with this book, um, as you are no doubt tired of hearing by now because I somehow seem to manage to find a way to intersperse this all the time. Um, I have degrees in history and religious studies, where my focus was the um, was actually not like the theology side of things as much as the interactions between the three monotheistic religions um, from about the 8th to the 10th centuries. As such, I do not think that if I had gone to Damien Black and said, write a novel that more caters to my interests and tastes, he could have written a novel much better than this one. So, I clearly loved the book. Um, My voice might not sound like it at the moment, but I do have a cold, so I'm not feeling great. But yeah, I absolutely enjoyed this book. And so, as a result, I'm going to maybe talk a little bit more about what um, some people might not have liked about the book. Uh, Sorry, Damien. I feel like that is just something that I should probably do, just so that I'm not coming across sounding as too much of an apostle of how much I enjoyed reading this novel. So on to the review. This book is fairly long at 650 pages. It is a standard high fantasy, although there isn't a ton of magic, so more of a medium level here. Um, It doesn't affect most people on a day-to-day basis, but once it finally does affect people, then it will really affect them. Uh, The World? is very big and can be hard to remember where things are. I kind of imagined it as Europe to help me out here. So we have a continent and the way that I kind of imagined it is, is in the northwest of the continent is a group that is basically like the, the British and the Scottish. Uh, to the north we have islands that are basically the Vikings and there's a big mountain range that separates the world in half. On the eastern side of that mountain range, you have basically what reminded me an awful lot of Holy Roman Empire of medieval Europe. If you go south, there's some, some kind of like more of like a feuding area where you're going to have a civil war and a lot of issues for the general populace. Then you get into some of the like the free cities that'll be kind of farther to the southeast that we don't deal with a whole lot in this novel. And then a part that we don't deal with at all here, but we will, I'm told eventually, and that I kind of imagine as the Middle East that brings us into there's a lot of places the way that I described it and a lot of um areas that can trip you up trying to remember but what I kind of just thought of was as the um in some ways of just imagine the world with their real world counterparts of, of how they would act and and look and I do think that uh that was something that made it easy for me maybe something you don't like to have to do but it's not something that ever bothers me in any series uh then the other big thing is that the religion is basically Christianity. No ifs, and, or buts about it. It's called the... Or they, they follow the Redeemer. He died on the wheel instead of the cross, but otherwise, you know, we're... All, I mean, we really are dealing with Christianity just in a different name. That's something that might bother some people. Um, as I said before, it's right up in my wheelhouse. Um, I thought he did a really good job of really recreating the way that... Um, Christianity would have been and about the 8th to 10th century. Monasteries, in some ways, would have been the, the pillars of communities and the, the place that held wider areas together. And monastic life does play a big part in this novel. One thing that is important to remember, like in our history from about the 8th to 10th century, is that there was not a whole lot of really good central government. You had a lot of individual warlords who managed to carve out their own territories and you basically held as much territory as your small army, sometimes only a few hundred people, was able to, to control and stop someone else from taking. So monastic life really did play a huge role in the world during that time period, just as it's going to play in this fictional world. That's something that historically is very accurate while you know being a fantasy itself. We're going to be dealing with a group of monks called the Argolian monks. They're a group that basically deals with exorcism, which kind of gets into some of the the more fantastical sides of the book. The magic is is broken down into left-handed and right-handed magic, as historically it would have been. Uh, Left-handed magic is bad, and the more powerful magic that is used that way kind of tears a rent in reality. And different levels of demons can come through. There are some that can invade people's bodies, and the Argolian monks are going to work to exorcise people. Uh, They'll also try to to drive demons away and, and send them back across the rent. The more powerful the magic, the bigger the rent, and also the more powerful the demon that can come through. So we're going to be dealing with different levels or tiers of demons as a result. So this book's basically going to be broken down into both the spiritual and the secular, so there's going to be two major things that are going to be going on. The first is the issue of the magic, and so the Argoli monks are going to play a large role. Uh, We will have a young monk who is in training, who's going to kind of get caught up in the spiritual side of things, which obviously will be intertwined with what's happening in the politics as well. So on the political side, I really thought this was a strength as well that you're going to have that code of chivalry and you're going to have a squire who we're going to deal with, who is supposed to be uh, striving for the ideals of chivalry. But especially during this time period, you basically just had people with big thugs with swords. And so they took what they wanted. And I think that in a way that even though our young squire is going to be trying to pursue the chivalrous ideals, you're going to see him drinking and womanizing and fighting Basically, how it really was, so I kind of enjoyed that, and he his thread will tie in the the political issue that will tie in with the young monk. Another thing that I do think that I need to add here is that uh Damien does continue to add point of view characters for uh, quite a ways through the novel. That was kind of one thing maybe that i I didn't enjoy as much. I wish that more of them, even if they were going to to play minor roles in this one, had come in a little bit earlier than some of them do. But aside from that, I really enjoyed things. I think that does a pretty good job of giving you the big big synopsis of it. We have a long interview coming up. But once again, as I said, I absolutely loved this novel. It was right up my wheelhouse. So uh, I hope that you guys all enjoy it. And Damien's going to talk about the fact that this book isn't for everyone. It is long and intense. And if that's not your cup of tea, then I am fully understanding. All right, let's get to it. The Nerdbook Review is happy to welcome Damian Black, author of Devil's Night Dawning, a current Spiffbo 2017 finalist, along with its sequel, Warlock's Sun Rising. Previously, he published An Urban Pentagram, a collection of five short horror stories. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Cameron. Um, Yeah, welcoming in in the new year. Um, Just recovered from the obligatory bout of winter flu, um, and I'm ready to go. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview with me today. Uh, I read your your book. Um, We're going on a, a few weeks ago now, but I still remember it pretty well, and I really enjoyed it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um well basically I I've been around for a little while. Um, yeah, I sort of early middle age. I got a bit of experience on the clock. I've worked as a journalist and copywriter for about just over ten years. Um travelled around quite a bit. I'm I'm currently based in North London, which is where I, I grew up um i was from a fairly humble background sort of lower middle class um i don't know what you call that in america sort of mix between blue and white color i suppose yeah. i have no idea how you would define that um, and <laughs> in american terms didn't go to a particularly great school um so i remember when i was young my dad said well you know you're you're gonna have to learn how to learn you're gonna have to learn to educate yourself um, So that's kind of what i did really i took to reading in a big way um, from a young age um and you know i grew up with all the kind of action blockbuster movies of the 80s and you know all of that stuff so that that was my thing for a while and then um i got into the whole rock band thing i sort of discovered i love guitars and i went off and i played in a band for a number of years and sort of got a little bit away from from the whole fantasy thing um, for quite some time. Um, yeah, quite a number of years, but I always had it on the back burner. I always thought, yeah, one day I'd really like to have a good stab at, um, at writing a fantasy story. But in the meantime, you know, I was working as a journalist. So that kind of fed into an interest in history. Um, I did a bachelor's degree in English literature, and then I kind of moved away from the classic stuff because I found it, you know, it can get quite heavy after a while. <laughs> yeah. um, Chaucer, Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, and I always had that side of me that liked the more kind of lively, maybe directional pop culture side of things. And then I went back and did a, a master's degree um, fairly recently, about five years ago. And I did that in the 18th century and um, so you know it's the early modern period but they said you know i've heard about the period was there were the last of the ancients and the first of the moderns and you know I, I think that kind of sums up the period for me really um and around that time i because you know i was getting back into reading in quite a big you know quite a big way as you can imagine having done degree yourself you know you know i was right back into that very cerebral um environment i thought okay i think now is the time to start getting serious um about the writing so yeah i I self-published urban pentagram which was just a bunch of shorts i'd been scratching away in my sort of 20s and early 30s and that's that's Um, a
0: horror correct not fantasy or is, is it like a horror fantasy
1: yeah i'd say i mean they're all set in london because you know they say when you're starting out at writing you should write what you know um so yeah it's very much a sort of low fantasy urban setting um i mean i'd say horror but there was a sort of black comedic twist going through all of those stories really um you know like one of them is about a a really kind of stuck up city trader that gets turned into a vampire and she only preys on lowlifes because she doesn't want to drink the blood of respectable people. So she winds up getting really ill because she's drinking the blood of, you know, bums and winos and stuff like that. So it's a bit of a commentary on the the class system. Um, And then there's another one about an academic who thinks he's discovered a, a long lost Egyptian cult based on, um, the old Egyptian cat god and he ends up getting into cocaine and he kind of does all sorts of crazy things so you know it's all about his ambition and his vanity he wants to be this you know stand out academic and make a name for himself so there there was a little bit of a subversive element it didn't take itself too seriously but that was really just me testing the waters but I knew that there was going to be I knew that when i was going to write fantasy it was going to have a seam of horror running right through it because i'd started reading hp lovecraft and edgar Allan poe i actually came to those guys quite late you know the fantasy stuff which we'll talk about in a bit i'm sure that goes way back to my teens but i didn't actually start reading horror until i was in my 30s to be honest with you and i thought hang on this this could actually really it could really, really work because I sort of grew up on all the role-playing games and game books in the 80s when I was a kid and they tapped that stuff as well and what I noticed about, you know, even though they're gamers, not actual writers of books, is they combine the sort of fantasy Arthurian tropes with the kind of classic horror stuff to really powerful effect and I just always felt there's maybe a bit of a gap, uh, a niche there for, for a straight, writer to to exploit where it hadn't maybe been done as much before
0: well i'm not a writer but i'm in my mid-30s now so i played some of the the tabletop gaming and stuff like that i think there was a lot of writers that got into fantasy that way with the with the gaming early on
1: yeah i I mean uh, absolutely um i mean for me you see to me this all connects this all ties in which is what i don't Really understand the kind of snobbery and inverted snobbery that happens in some areas of of the the book world, um, because to me it became very quickly apparent. You know, by the end of my teens, I saw it as a continuum. So you know, I started out, you know, sort of pre-teens, early teens. It was the kind of choose your own adventure style game books, and we had some great series in in the UK. I don't know if they ever went worldwide, but you know written by you know okay they were games but you know they were also very well written by you know guys who were you know university educated and they really knew their stuff i mean really knew their stuff um and that i found quite inspiring and then you know as i got a bit older i started to read more historical stuff i started to read classics like sir thomas mallory le mort d'artha i started to look at chaucer Shakespeare obviously and I just realized that these guys I'd grown up with the best of them had actually been tapping a lot of these ideas you know you can you can take it right back to Homer and, and beyond and I just began to see it as a continuum you know even though I'm not a particularly religious person but right up to and including you know the bible if you look at the old testament and you know they've got it all there they got sorcerers corrupt kings armies wars fights over women you know people being punished uh, you know evil angels sent to, you know sent to trial mankind i mean it's all to me it's all a continuum i just see it as as part of a a larger whole if you will and and so you know really it just one reading interest fed into another um and then it eventually took me to this point where i thought okay i'm gonna try and tie all of that stuff i've absorbed over the past you know 20 30 years i'm going to try and tie it together in in my own series
0: yeah that is a good way to get into actually talking about devil's night dawning i think if i had to give a i like to always try to do a, a quick uh, like one or two sentence uh, blurb when i do my reviews and i think it, mm-hmm. uh, a good way to describe it is constantine meets uh 10th century monast- monasticism and knights in a fantasy world and by that I mean the the, mo- the Keanu Reeves movie Constantine is kind of what I uh, what I was thinking of there for people that uh, um, with uh, like exorcism and things like that.
1: I've seen the film. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good film. I also grew up on the comic books, the graphic novel on which it's based. Um, I didn't have a lot of money as a kid, but some of my friends had a bit more than I did, so I'd always pinch their comics. You know, I just <laughs> borrow this. I'll, I'll give this back to you at some point. Um, yeah, I got quite a bad reputation after all. I was like, yeah, if you want to read our comics, you can come around to my house and read them in my house. But you know, I wasn't very, <laughs> I wasn't always so great at giving things back. It just slipped my mind, you know. Um, you yeah, there was no design or intent. Um, yeah, but basically I, yeah, Constantine, you know, he's the very charming, cheeky, chappy South Londoner who's, you know, also got, you know, a bit of a thing fighting demon kind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in terms of, of the century, that that's interesting because I would say certainly with regards to the Viking Age, yeah you'd be spot on 8th to 10th century I think this is why I chose not to become a historical novelist as well because what I love about fantasy is you can go as far as you want with the historicity you know you can you can you can take as much of it as you want I mean you may have noticed in terms of things like arms and armor I deliberately left it a bit vague because I wanted to leave some of it to the reader's imagination but I would say in terms of of you know the mainland sort of knight culture you're probably looking at 12th 13th century so high middle ages prior to the great plague um you know they don't walk around in clanking plate armor i just wanted something a bit more rough and ready um so i'd say it's a mishmash i mean in terms of the structure of society having a yeomanry having inns at regular points that's probably more akin to the later middle ages um, certainly the Viking culture, the the Northlandic culture, yeah, that's very much 8th to 10th century. Um, and really, I just mixed it up, you know, and that's what I love about being a fantasy author is is you basically get to take absolute liberties with history. And yeah, I love it.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing, as you said, that, that you were uh, deliberately a little bit vague about that. And I did kind of I noticed that as the book went on that you don't ever actually mention like getting into plate, for example, which for for a a historical person like me, um, it was something that I actually really liked because I was able to imagine it the way that, you know, I thought they should, they would be at that time period.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, because I I have a bit of an obsessive streak like a lot of writers and I thought, well, if they're walking around in plate, I mean, for starters, there's always a debate as to how heavy the stuff was. Um, and there was that film uh, Connecticut Yankee in Arthur's Court which I think is based on a Mark Twain story Um, don't quote me on that but anyway there's a scene where the knight gets knocked off his horse and he can't actually get up which made plate armour suddenly very unfashionable for storytelling and now there's been a whole slew of new latter day medievalists who come along and say well no it wasn't like that at all it was much more practical you know they could actually move around it was lighter than you think but what I liked about the early high medieval stuff was because it was more sort of like chain mail or mail, as it would have been called then, is it left room for a surcoat or, you know, a kefaya to cover the head and, you know, hotter, more, you know, like when they went on crusade. And it's just a bit more bling, you know, it's a bit more fashionable. They could have a surcoat, you know, it was a bit of, you know, style, not just kind of clanking around like a tank. But I thought if that's if you're reading, that's your image, your archetypal image of, a you know, a mounted knight. I don't want to really be taking that away from you, So I just dropped in a hint. And also having grown up with the role-playing games, you know, I mean, I really appreciate what George R.R. R. Martin has done, but sometimes I couldn't help but feel like I was reading a D&D character. You know, he had plate mail and a long sword. And I grew up with all that stuff and I kind of, I wanted I didn't want it to read like a Dungeons and Dragons novel even though I've obviously as you know I was saying earlier I've taken a lot of um, influences from that. So yeah I just deliberately in certain areas I just thought which sounds odd cuz I say I'm quite a descriptive writer but at, at certain points I just wanted to hold off and just okay yeah leave it to the reader to imagine you know how he or she wants
0: yeah. And like I said, I think that, that that worked really well for me as far as, you know, me enjoying that part of it. And the I'm way glad. that I, and as I've described often in this podcast, I'm the kind of um, reader that at times I'll miss details because I don't care as much about the specific word that's written down. I just kind of imagine the story in my mind the entire time that I'm reading it. And so it was nice to be able to, to you know, in my mind, imagine it, you know, the, a character in mail and maybe some plate here and there. But for the most part, I imagine right. as they would have been in that, in the eighth to 10th century. So absolutely, let's talk a little bit more about the actual, uh, um, storyline. Um, not try, try not to be too spoilery, but so that we can kind of describe okay. how the, the book goes. And, you know, we start off, um, the the first chapter is a monk and his apprentice who the apprentice will be one of the major point of view characters. And Indeed. he is going to, they're going to actually be performing a, an exorcism. And, um, what what does what are kind of the dangers of magic in this world?
1: Right. Well, the the dangers I'd say are manifold. Um, I mean, first of all, yeah, using magic itself can can have lethal consequences. Um, it, again, it's something I, I deliberately chose to leave somewhat vague. I did put in quite a bit of detail, but I, I just want I want to reveal it gradually as the series progresses. I didn't want to give it all away straight away, but. Um, Broadly speaking, there are seven schools of magic, um, and they are divided between the left and the right hand, which is historical, by the way. Um, There was not the seven schools. uh, That's my contribution, if you will. But historically, there's left hand and right hand magic. The left hand historically tended to deal more with what they call blood magic or black magic. The right hand was seen more as, as more benign. So... Left hand magic would be demonology and necromancy. So anything to do with raising the spirits of the dead or channeling those or conjuring demons um, or or tapping into any of that kind of darker side stuff would be left hand magic. Right hand magic would be, it's not necessarily benign, but it depends on how you use it, I suppose. But the dangers are... Uh, that there's a rent between worlds which i've called the other side so you basically have the the natural kingdom which has been laid down according to certain rules you know ordained by depending on what you believe either your monotheistic god or the gods um and if that is the more magic is used of either kind left or right hand the wider the rent gets and the more ability demon kind and various other spirits, phase banshees have to, to to cross over. So it it almost has a kind of pseudo-scientific feel to it, I suppose, in terms of, you know, that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. But it's sufficiently vague enough that I think it still taps into the fantasy tropes. Um I heard a radio show recently that suggested that when Newton published Principia Mathematica in the 17th century actually a lot of the ideas he was talking about like gravity people who are into natural magic were already aware of those the difference is Newton was the first to explain it using mathematics so um I actually heard that after I designed my magic system but I often feel there's a un- there's something universal that all of us authors are tapping into um I'm sure I'm by no means alone in in having this kind of a a magic system, but but that's that's pretty much the one where I went with. So, yeah, using magic has consequences, both directly and indirectly, if you will.
0: Yeah, and I would I guess I would consider it, your book to be kind of like a maybe lower medium level of actual magic use. Um, the yeah. average day to day person is not going to be using magic, and usually when you're affected, it's because a powerful wizard or sorcerer has used the magic and that those consequences affected you? That's correct,
1: yeah. And it's generally shunned and feared. Um, the reason being because of the backstory is that you know, 5,000 years ago or thereabouts, there was like a world empire um, ruled by a race of kind of super wizards like arch mages. And that all went horribly wrong. Obviously, I won't get too spoilery. And ever since then magic the use of magic whether of the left or the right hand has been rightly feared and then that situation has further been complicated by the advent of monotheism in the last thousand years or so. Um, where you know you now have a very clear schism between and here's where it gets maybe a little tricky where you have people like the Argolian monks who claim to channel the power of you know godhead directly using miracles but then again i've left that vague because you could argue well that's magic because it has a kind of supernatural effect so i just wanted to play with these ideas because you know i noticed throughout history again you know one man's miracle is a miracle worker is another man's witch you know saints are canonized and venerated witches were burned at the stake and you know there, there was always this blurring of the line you know human beings seldom rational in in my experience we don't always get things right um, or even know what right is and so I wanted to play with that as much as I could by throwing lots of perhaps seemingly conflicting ideas into the pot um, and just see where I went with it and really and it in the end it does I think boil down to a character's point of view very much so in terms of what you decide is good or bad or Black magic or white magic or a miracle or a spell, um, and yeah, I just wanted to play with that human perception as much as I possibly could.
0: Yeah, well, and the um, this is my my other degree is in religious studies, and ah. I, and what I actually focused on was the um, the interaction between the different monotheistic religions, and so I think that having like studied a little bit of the, that um, early monasticism and Christianity. There actually was a surprising amount of that, um, you know, the of of disagreement, and I think that we have hit a point where we're far enough past like the Reformation and those kind of things that we don't see that as much anymore with Christianity. It's a pretty settled religion, but you know, in the eighth to tenth century, there was a lot of interaction between pagans and even, I mean, Christians killed each other more often than then they were killing pagans at that point. for Absolutely, their this were, is correct. I mean, they considered them a bigger danger because their heretical beliefs, you know, could have led everyone astray.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, this is it. And this ties back exactly, you know, just so. It is you know, this, the, the points of view change so much. And, you know, I often see that looking back through history, it is like looking through a glass darkly. I mean, you know, there's a biblical quote, but there you go. Um you know you're looking back through it and you'll try I often feel you know when I've been reading history particularly if you go back to the dark ages like the early middle ages you know I felt like I was reading the notes of a detective to be honest you know it's very sort of hedging bets we think they might have done this this is how they might have lived this is the these are the materials we think they used and it's you know people really lose track I think um We tend to have a very settled idea of, you know, what things were like in the past, but what we don't realize is that is just a reflection of a reflection of a reflection. That is just the current viewpoint that we have. And in 50 years' time, you know, our descendants will probably have a very different view once again of the Middle Ages, than we have now, just as we have a very different view now than, say, the Victorians did um, or the Georgians before them. Um, and if you, yeah, the more you look at historiography, the more you realise that actually, for a writer, it's it's a godsend, really, because it's all there. It's all there to play for. You know, you you can pick up whatever narrative of whatever historical period you like and run with it, because it's all constantly under revision, um, as far as I'm aware. Uh, so, yeah, that again, that was just something that I just thought, wow, this is manna from heaven. I'm going to play with this as, yeah. as much as I can, really. Yeah. Uh, no end of inspiration.
0: And, yeah, absolutely. And then so we've talked quite a bit about that religion and magic through your um, monk uh, point of view character. And then your um, the other uh, like big point of view character for the majority of the book is a squire. And yep. um he's gonna give us that that political side and and get us into the intrigues of the world and what made you decide on having uh, both a monk and a squire as your two big point of view characters?
1: Yeah, it's a good question Cameron um honestly i um i mean as much as I'm maybe trying to present myself as a you know very well read so and so I'm actually very much a creature of instinct. I really do just. Sometimes I just get an idea and I run with it and, you know, oh, I wouldn't say make it up as I go along, but I just, it, the ideas came to me. I think I like Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose a lot. I, and I enjoyed the film with Sean Connery and, um, oh, who was it that played Adso? It was, um, no, it's gone. I can't remember him. <laughs> Christine Slate. Uh, great film, great book, um, and I just liked it. I, I, I liked the fact that you had these monks trying to play detective and work out a murder. And I, you know, growing up with Conan Doyle on the Sherlock Holmes story. So, you know, I, I it tapped into all of that. So I thought, OK, I'll get a monk. I'll, so I'll make him a pacifist. That's very un because usually the protagonist is quite violent, especially these days. I'll make him obviously devout pretty religious again that's very against the zeitgeist because usually it, you know the undercurrent is very very much you know an almost cynical disregard of religion and faith um and rather than being a wizard i'll make him belong to an order that is dedicated to tracking down wizards that views them with absolute distrust if not outright abhorrence um so that was the idea for the the monk characters i thought that was i felt that hadn't been done The Squire, I don't know, again, like I said, creature of instinct. I just ran with it. I just wanted someone aspirational, someone who wants it too much. Um, Also, I should mention, you know, growing up in the UK, I mean, our great evil or one of them is the class system. Um, And we still have issues with it. I think, you know, we, we, we will for a long time to come. And I wanted to explore that. A little bit you know you have someone who is basically pretty good at what he does he's not perfect by any means he's flawed in many respects he's got a temper on him he can get excessively violent you know as you rightly you know sometimes he drinks too much he's a bit of a womanizer but he's basically good at what he does but he's held back you know there is a well I was going to say glass ceiling but it's it's more like a concrete ceiling in that kind of milieu he's not allowed to progress um and I wanted to explore that—that that kind of frustrated ambition, because we—we still have that in the UK. You know, if you're not—if you didn't go to private school, or, you know, you don't speak with the right accent. There are definitely doors that are closed to you, and a lot of people feel that in in this country, I believe. Um, so I wanted to kind of give a voice to that. Um, also, it's just nice to have a character with a fixed ambition, because with Adelco, it's much more. Um, it's much less clearly defined, you know, what he is, what he's going to become, where he's going. He's much more unassuming, whereas Vascarin is someone he clearly knows what he wants. But how the hell does he get there? And I just thought that would be a good character arc to to follow.
0: Yeah, well, and <laughs> I I liked how he he basically was how a knight really was throughout history. I mean, they had a yeah. sword and they were powerful yeah. and violent and, um, yeah. I mean. He's 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 going to talk about that code of chivalry, but he's also going to sleep with anyone he can, and he's going yeah. to get into brawls and get drunk. Absolutely, and as long as the you know as long as he kills another uh, squire honorably, it yes. doesn't matter what the you know what the reason is. So I feel like they uh, that was a really good example of how um, life probably would have been like you know if you especially if you're just the average person dealing with um, with the uh, mounted. Uh, soldiers, you know, uh, the average person is not going to fare well in this book.
1: No, no, I mean, this is it. Uh, you know, there, there will be real class barriers. Um, uh, and the thing with Vasquez is really, um, I, I just felt that there, there is just that burning desire in, in him to better himself, but he's, you know, he constantly trips himself up. Um, but, but also in terms of of how knights really behave, I mean, I, I saw a documentary not too long ago, actually. And it was a good quote, the professor, he was from the States, he said, um, actually, you know, your average 11th century knight, I think it's before they developed the peace of God and the law of God, which gave rise to the code of chivalry, he said, you know, back then, you know, your average knight had more in common with, um, what is it, the, the Godfather or one of the Sopranos than Lancelot. You know, they were basically hired muscle, you know, these guys were pretty... Aggressive. And then I thought it through and I thought, yeah, Vasqueen, he'd probably be, you know, if he was in a modern environment, he'd probably be like someone out of the wire, you know, standing on a corner, you know, trying to work his way up as a drug dealer and, you know, taking out anyone that got in his way. Um, Because there there is that element of ruthlessness to it. Um, Because this is what these people did, you know, They, they were hired killers. You know, okay, some of them had titles and land, but there was an exchange of goods for service, and that service was to go out and and to kill the enemy. Um, I was also aware that when, in having Sir Torgan, who is my perfect gentle knight, to paraphrase Chaucer, if I, okay, if I was going to have a character like that, who actually genuinely is trying to embody all the sort of the chivalrous knightly ideals that the Victorians celebrated and what have you, i would better damn well make sure that he's not the norm because otherwise you know i'll get all the accusations oh it's noble bright it's not you know it's not serious <laughs> fantasy it's a fairy tale so because again I, I i don't back away from archetypes i wanted to have yep i want a knight that is trying to be you know the perfect shining knight. but the only way that was going to work is i had to have him rubbing shoulders with all these other characters like braxus like walmart like Vasquez, even though he's, you know, technically a, a bit of a wannabe, who, you know, are, are not exactly, you know, do not exactly conform to that to that perfect ideal. Um, but I think that's very true to life because you will you will get the occasional person who is a bit of an idealist and, frankly, tries to be a bit of a goody two shoes. Whether you agree with them or not, uh, whether you see them as being as good as they purport to be again i've left that to the reader's imagination you know that's for you to decide um whether you think any of them are truly good i mean i, I do made the point later on via Horcrum that they're all killers regardless of how honorable they may or may not be and horsecrum himself has blood on his hands so you know again it was just very in doing in positing this quasi medieval universe it was very difficult to get away from just how endemically violent it would have been and I think maybe Adelco and obviously Ad Helena and Hetty would be the only I would say truly innocent characters in the sense that they you know they haven't actually done anyone in you know everyone else has actually you know pretty much as far as I can remember everyone else all my other protagonists have killed someone at least once or twice in their life so it's you know, how many people do you know today who've actually committed murder or any other kind of killing? I mean, it's it's pretty shocking when you actually stop to reflect on it.
0: Yeah, and it that is one thing that no matter how people talk about how violent the world is today, it I mean, we are at our uh, the safest we've probably ever been just about in history in you know, yeah. reality, unless you're in a war zone.
1: Yeah, this is it. Well, this is it, exactly. And it's something that is constantly on my mind. You know, as I say, I used to work as a journalist and torture the cliche, but it's like a front was it what do they say? A front seat in the making of history and you know, it's like every day it's like war, murder, famine, rape, and it's like you see the worst of humankind and then you you read the history and you know sort of in the anglo-saxon period east anglia which is quiet as you know cricket style quiet nowadays it had a higher murder rate than i think new york in the 70s you know if you do it in proportion so you're like okay yeah medieval society was violent you know there was no organized police force um it was very difficult to prove or disprove accusations leveled um yeah it was dangerous it was extremely dangerous and you know, again, for me, the whole Grimdark trend, like having grown up on the game books and the role-playing games and, and, and reading history a bit later on, to me, this is nothing new. You know, I don't think Grimdark starts with George R.R. R. Martin and why, to be honest, I have a bit of a problem with the term. I think it's a bit of a fad. I think any, any author that is seriously going to plumb the sources of fantasy, whether that be history or mythology, or religious scripture, you know, it's going to wind up being, you know, as they like to say on that forum, grim, dark as fuck. Anyway, I don't see how it can't be, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, once you start to read what life was really like, um, you know, it was anything but gentle.
0: <laughs> That's absolutely correct. And, but no, and I really do think your book does a, a really good job of just portraying how the world was for people. And, you know, you're going to have a lot of, um, you know just collateral damage with um, as as mm-hmm. we have a civil war that's going to happen you know is kind of the main um, non magic political uh um, storyline that's the word I was looking for um, and a lot yeah. of you know a lot of unfortunate villagers and peasants are going to be killed in the process, which is something that that just happened on a regular basis
1: yeah right so yeah I mean certainly when you know when when they went to war because it wasn't just People getting chopped up with swords or axes, you know, wells would be poisoned, crops would be raised. You know, it was like total war and microcosm. Um, and, you know, it, it got very, uh, I mean, uh, what I noticed about the early modern period, like the 18th century, is war actually got a lot more codified. The casualties were very high but generally they were mainly combatant casualties. And then Napoleon is the the beginning of the return to total war where it's like, no, soldiers will live off the land. You know, in other words, they will raise villages to the ground and deprive them of their, you know, their foodstuffs. Um, So we've kind of seen a return to that in the past couple of hundred years. Um, And one thing I'd say about medieval warfare is obviously the casualties would have been on a smaller scale, but then that would have been because the population was correspondingly a lot smaller but yeah I should I should think it was very brutal and that's one thing I think George R. R. Martin did do a very good job of although like I said I don't think he's you know he can be credited for inventing it but he certainly you know he brought that back into the spotlight um, by showing the 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 brutalities the realities of, of medieval style warfare um but again like I said for me growing up on history and the role playing games and, and all of that stuff, um, you know, that wasn't news to me at all. Um, it was, yeah, pretty self evident. I mean, as you know yourself from having studied history.
0: Yeah. How, um, I know you have your second book out now, just came out. How many books mm-hmm. do you plan on having in the series?
1: yeah well basically there's going to be five books in the broken stone chronicle um and that takes it Okay, i have to be careful no spoilers but that takes it to a certain point where okay i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna choose my words carefully here but where a certain aspect of the story is done but there would be scope for a follow-up series um, with some of the characters from the first from the first series, um, continuing their adventures and continuing the saga of that world that I've created. Because um, bearing in mind, I spent several years designing the world before I ever started writing Devils. Um, I took the Tolkien approach in that respect, um, where I actually started designing a world with its fully interactive history and mythos um so yeah i there, there would be scope for that i know there's precedence um i mean there's a guy called uh, david hare i have only read the one of his books um but he had the sun surge and i think it's the moontide quartet so they're two quartets back to back but that can be read as standalones um, and i just read the first book of the second series and really loved it hopefully i'll, I'll get to pick up on the first series at some point when i make time Um, but I think David Eddings back in the day did that as well with the Malorian and the Belgariad. So there's definitely precedent for it if there's an appetite, but obviously we're, we're early days yet. Um, I'm still, to be honest, pretty much in unknown quantity. Um, so I'm going to see, I'm going to progress with this series first, see how it goes. Um, and if there's an appetite for it, sure, you know, I'd love to continue. I really enjoy doing what I do.
0: Yeah, and that is one thing, actually two things that you said there. The the first that you spent a lot of time beforehand setting up the world. It is a uh it is a very well-defined world and you can tell that there's a lot of background and that it's it's very filled out. In fact, it's one thing I think that um if I had even a, you know a criticism is that I had zero trouble Um, understanding how the world was set up because of my background but it is a pretty in-depth world if you don't have any sort of a history background
1: it is yeah i mean that is that will be an ongoing issue um i was aware of that as, as i was writing it i mean to be fair i've been told that the second book has a much quicker pace to it than the first um everyone from my beta readers through to people who've gone on to, to buy and read um, both books um, yeah I, you know i armed and aard over that I, I really um really i did um i armed and armed over it a lot um, and then in the end i just decided to go for it i at the end of the day you know i'll keep coming back to this but i am very much a creature of, of passion of instinct i write from the heart Um, you know, I can be very meticulous and plan things out, but I think the impetus behind that is always deep down inside. What is my gut telling me to do with this? What is, what is my my heart impelling me to do? And it just said, go for it. Just put in the background, put in the detail, put in the world building as they like to call it nowadays. If people don't like that, that's fine. Then it's not for them. You know, you can't because you can't please all of the people all of the time. I mean, look, you take people who are far greater stature than, than than I will ever, ever be. Let's take the Beatles, for example. I mean, standout success, no one would dispute it. I guarantee you there are people out there that cannot stand them, but it doesn't have to matter that much. You just need to find the right people, such as yourself, such as Kitty. Um, and that's what I'm hopeful of doing is, yeah, it's not for the faint hearted. I, I do, I am painfully conscious of that, that the zeitgeist at the moment seems to be very quick fiction. Um, none of your Robert Jordan epics, whom I haven't read by the way, but, um,
0: <laughs> that's, that's you know. actually what got me into uh, fantasy in the first place.
1: Right. Well, I should check him out. Shouldn't I? I, I really should. Um,
0: but I will say this though, is that, That while you do have, um, you know, the very traditional high fantasy like journey and big, um, you know, background, there's still a lot of action. There's not going to be like huge periods of time where you're just where the, the, the characters are just walking along the road where nothing happens.
1: That's, that's correct. Yeah, I wanted to avoid like the whole Tom Bombadil syndrome in Lord of the Rings, which I love. I love Tolkien. I'm not going to try and be cool and directional. I love Lord of the Rings. I love the Silmarillion. But yeah, there took me a couple of attempts to, to, to actually read his stuff for that reason. And I was very conscious of that. I thought, okay, if there's going to be a lot of... You know, tale telling, you know, in in caves while they're hiding out from evil spirits and, you know, a lot of backstory and secret councils. I need to pepper this with, you know, plenty of action. And and hopefully I've got the balance right. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of action in, you know, even book one. But again, it was something I was very conscious of. I remember when I sat down finally to write the thing, I just had this voice. It was almost like on a loop in the back of my head saying, don't rush this don't rush this. Do not rush this. And I think I almost deliberately just took the pace off the first third of that first book. I I just wanted, I don't know, I had a vision of a flower just slowly opening out, you know, so I wanted to start off small microcosm, tiny village in the middle of nowhere up in the highlands, small tight-knit communities, you know, very superstitious. And I just gradually wanted to open out and gradually give the reader more Um, and a friend of a friend who's who's become a bit of a fan of the series he's on the second book now and he says he really feels like he's hit the payoff now because it's the the pace has picked up um, a lot more but you know just one final thing I'd say apropos of all that is to me it is like an album or a symphony you know you have some fast numbers you have some slow numbers you take it up a notch you take it back down you know tension release tension release I'm not a huge fan of novel. I mean, no one would want to read a novel that's relentlessly slow. But I'm not a huge fan of novels that are relentlessly fast-paced either. Cameron, I have to be honest with you. I think you, there's got to be a bit of give and take, you know, um, you know, just to take the reader through different experiences, and that, that's what I've tried to do. But yeah, it it, it is pretty. In some respects, it can be pretty heavyweight. I think maybe for the uninitiated, but that's not for me to say at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, well, and <laughs> I'm not the the best person to to you know to decide on this either, because as I said, this is a book that basically, I mean, both of the things I studied in college were um, are what you deal with, and I feel like you do a very good job of dealing with those subjects. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm I'm not like a I don't have a PhD or anything, but you know, I at least have uh, probably a, a a wider background than, you know, ninety nine percent of the people are going to have in this subject. And and I think you hit it very well and so I'm not a good person to say whether maybe you went a little too deep or not, because I you know, I just think that um you did if this is what you were trying to do then then you know you achieved your goal and i can see why uh like kitty g um started off with such a high rating and i'm not sure if anyone else has uh you know gotten into the rating of it yet but um you know it was a it was a book that that i really enjoyed and and i think that it's it's one that's going to um there's a reason why you are a finalist in this year's uh, competition now talking about that competition have you um Notice any sort of uh, sales bump or anything like that, or what is your yeah. overall experience oh, yeah. with it?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yes. Um, absolutely. I mean, I'd say three things that were game-changers for me in the past six months. Number one was finally biting the bullet and in investing a bit of money in, in advertising on Amazon. Not too much, but just a little. Um and number two was getting the second book out in the series because then you know that helps alleviate George R. R. Martin syndrome whether like is this person actually going to finish what they started? Um, and number three was entering the spiffbow competition. Um just gotta say a big thanks to Ben Galley for pointing me in that direction. Um he's an excellent self-published novelist. I'm a bit of a fan of his. Um and he said, you know, I, I kind of Quiston because he's a bit of a you know self-publishing guru as well. I said, look, how how the hell do you get traction? You know, I'm a complete unknown. And he said, enter the enter the spiff bowl when it comes up. It it will you know if if you get deep into it, it will do you the power of good. So that's what I did. Um, and yeah, obviously a huge thanks to Kitty as well um, and you as well, Cameron, for because every bit of publicity helps. Um, because I know that my style of writing it is a bit take, you know, it is a bit of a take no prisoner style of writing. So it has to find the right audience. Um, and I think entering this competition has really, yeah, it's massively helped. Um, you know, I was lucky to sell five or ten copies a month at this time last year. You know, now it's 10, 20 times that. I mean, I can't. I don't know if that will sustain. I certainly hope it does um but really you could not make it up i'm i'm just eternally massively grateful and frankly this is more success already than i'd really seriously anticipated you know i i saw this as a bit of a hobby horse if i'm being really honest with you which maybe does come across in the fact that it's so heavy on certain aspects that you know when marketeers would say oh don't do that it's too much it will put the reader off and blah 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 and I thought, well, screw that. This is this is what I this is the story I want to write. This is, you know and I, I had a life coach for a while a few years ago because I was in, you know, a bit of a crossroads. And he said, Well look, do you like what you write? And I said, Yeah, actually not to blow smoke up my own rear end, but I do really enjoy what I write. And he said, Well, go for it, because if you enjoy what you write, chances are somebody else will. And so far I'm happy to say so it's proving and I just hope it continues.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm glad that uh, the competition is, uh, you know, is is going well for you. So, where you you mentioned that you are planning on, um, you know, if things go well, doing a, a series of five and then writing another series after that um, tied to this. Do you have any plans on um, anything outside of this still, or or do you think this is just going to be such a big project that you're going to continue on with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is a pretty you know again not to succumb to hubris but it is a pretty massive undertaking um i am a bit of a monomaniac if the truth be told i do find it quite difficult to you know when i played in a band i was in a band and that was it i practiced for hours a day and you know blah 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 and it it just you know i definitely have an, an obsessive streak um so much so that it's actually caused me problems in the past, you know, I, I do have an, you know, I'm actually diagnosed as being an obsessive type, probably won't, won't surprise people in the least um, <laughs> listening to this. But um, yeah, I couldn't see myself branching out. I mean, I, I'm, I am occasionally presented with offers Do you want to write a short story for you know, I'm part of a consortium of self published and small press authors called Grim Darklings, um, run by the excellent Mel Spencer. Um so props to her for setting that up. But I can't see it at the moment. I, I really am just, you know, I'm right into book three now. I'm about forty thousand words down. There's many more of those to come and yeah to be honest I, I can't see myself diversifying in in the immediate future um but but you never know um i kind of had an idea for an alternative history novel, but set in the future like what if world war ii had been a draw and you still had the soviets and the nazis and then the western forces and maybe set it in 2050 and but it's never really i don't know answers on a postcard if you can do anything with that crazy idea let me know and maybe i'll uh, <laughs> I'll see what i can come up with but no for for now it's full steam ahead with with the projects in hand i think
0: awesome well i look forward to reading uh book two which i know is already out and um then book three when it comes out so hey thank you so very much for coming on the podcast today let's go ahead and get everywhere that you can be reached um out in one yeah.
1: place yeah Okay, so um, now let me see. Um, okay, so Twitter, my Twitter handle is at the Devil's Friar. Yeah, um, so on Facebook, that is just um, Damien Black, and, and I should come up on that. I've also got a website which is www.damienblackwords.com. Um, I don't know if you want to put this in the final cut, but it did get hijacked by a rather enterprising. Gorilla porn site but I think I got that cleared up and it's oh, slightly, yeah slightly annoying yeah because my mum saw it as well she's like you know why, why is there a picture of a good looking girl making love on this I was like well it's probably more alluring than anything I'm going to come up with but no I think I better <laughs> I think I better sort it out hadn't I because you know as she put it so dryly that's not your style at all is it well no not really um so anyway hopefully that's been resolved um yeah you might want to edit this part of the interview um and let me see so we've done the website we've done twitter facebook uh i feel like there's something glare at you do you know i'm not to be honest with you cameron i haven't been a great one for getting on other platforms like Wattpad and Reddit. oh i'm on goodreads though goodreads oh, and that's I mean, where most of my reviews and ratings are clocking up so damien black on goodreads yeah yeah no i I think that should be yeah i mean uh, i i think now actually quite gratifyingly if you type in damien black into google search engine i'm actually the first person that comes up because there's quite a few of us out there you think it's quite an unusual name and it is my given name by the way i didn't it's not a nom de plume or anything like that um (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: yeah, I wasn't going to ask that, but uh, my wife did say uh, that I, she told me to ask you if you came by that name. If it was your given name, or if you paid the iron no, it, price for it. So no, no,
1: I didn't pay the iron price for it. I'm afraid my parents paid the birth certificate price for it. It <laughs> is actually my honest name, and my middle name is Lou, which is because I'm half French, and Lou is the French word for wolf. So you, you you couldn't make it up. I mean, one good story I got is I was working for a born-again Christian years ago, and it was him and one other manager. And and the other manager, he, you know, we were just making conversations like my first week on the job. And he said, so what's your full name, Damien? Damien Lou Black. And we had to speak French as part of the job because it was working in the coach station. so, So, you know, we needed a second language. He said, whatever you do, don't tell Tony when he's on shift that your full name is Damien Black Wolf. And I said, why not? He "He takes his Christianity and superstition very seriously. So me being me, it's one of the first things I told him. And he started trying to tell me that, you know, basically I had devil worshippers in my family going back several (laughs) generations. And he totally, I mean, he totally meant it. He was absolutely convinced. Like, now, Damien, I don't want to insult you. It's not your parents that were devil worshippers, probably not even your grandparents, but somewhere back in time. So how did they get to stay alive to name me? Can you explain that? I think he's (laughs) the one who should be writing this stuff, not me. But, um, you know, I'm in the wrong game. I can't top that. But anyway, (laughs) no, it's a real name. It's it's it is a real name. Awesome.
0: (laughs) Well, hey, thank you so very much for doing the interview today. I really had a good time. And um, yeah,
1: me too. All right. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks very much.